0: Just as our strategic environment is changing, and we're starting to see what I would regard as the beginning of a reset of some of our really important relationships.
1: We should be under no illusions that this is a fully independent Australia defence strategy. There's still also that continued great reliance on the United States
0: and on a whole range of of partners in the region. We're banking a lot on technology and we're banking a lot on the ability to create big effects with a relatively small but high-tech force.
2: Yes, we need to be focusing on the technology, but we also need to be focusing on the human elements, the human endeavours, to address the disinformation and to engage in information warfare. And that means we need to invest in our public diplomacy capability.
1: The fact is that the major power that Australia has in its mind when it's thinking about these capabilities is China. And everything that Australia or other countries in the region have done to actually restrain their own military modernisation has not had the slightest effect, as I can see it, on restraining China's. The question of revisionism and military modernisation in countries like China and indeed the repression internally Of course all these things are going to focus minds with with reference to the 1930s.
2: The Australian community is up to it and they're up for it. Never has there been a time where so many Australians are talking about supply chains, about sovereign capability, about foreign interference, about fuel security, about food security. Never has there been a time.
3: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is a podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments you just heard were made by Gabe Brottman, Rory Medcalf and Brendan Sargent and we'll be back to hear more from them on Australia's Defence Strategic Update right after this message.
4: And 365 day returns.
3: On July 1, the Australian Government released the 2020 Defence Strategic Update and the 2020 Force Structure Plan, which aimed to outline a new strategy for Australia's defence and the capability investments to deliver it. These documents are intended to act as an update to the 2016 Defence White Paper, and the reason given for making this update is that the challenges and destabilising forces identified within the 2016 White Paper have accelerated faster than were anticipated. Australia is now seen as facing a region of increased strategic competition and risk, which again will only be exacerbated by the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. The risk of terrorism and the need for humanitarian assistance and disaster response and so on still exist, but it's impossible to miss that the primary challenges this strategy aims to meet are state-based. Most of the capabilities addressed in the strategic update and force structure plan are not really new to Australia. We have long had uh, an offensive cyber capability over the horizon radar and long range missiles but what is new is the potency of these capabilities and the resources that are being dedicated to increase capacity the enhancement of our ability to conduct surveillance the increased reach of offensive capabilities as well as a pivoting of these capabilities to respond to gray zone tactics and the reinforcement of Australia's ability to independently deploy force for a sustained period during a time of heightened conflict within our region. It's easy to get dazzled by the array of shiny kit and grand platforms that are discussed in this strategic update and the force structure plan, but what's important for us here at the National Security College is what this strategy and structure signifies – that Australia is adapting the way that it approaches national defence and regional security to reflect the nature of the challenges that it faces, the heightened risk within the region. And this means that Australia is intending to play a greater shaping role within its alliance partnership with the United States and to indicate to the region that Australia is willing to act decisively to pursue its national interests. And to dig right into this issue, we are joined on this episode by Professor Brendan Sargent, who is the head of the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. He's a former senior executive from the Department of Defence, where he held senior roles such as Associate Secretary, Deputy Secretary for Strategy and Head of Strategic Policy Division, among others. We are also joined by Miss Gay Brotman, who is the former Member of Parliament for Canberra, where she served as the Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Defence and Shadow Assistant Minister for Cybersecurity. Prior to being elected to Parliament, Gay also served as a diplomat with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And we are joined by the head of National Security College, Professor Rory Medcalf, who also served as an Australian diplomat, as well as an intelligence analyst, and before that, he was a journalist. So let's hear that conversation right now, facilitated by a National Security Podcast host, Catherine Manstead.
4: Gay, Brendan and Rory, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Now, on the 1st of July, the Australian government launched the Defence Strategic Update and 2020 Force Structure Plan – In the Prime Minister's words, to guide our nation through one of the most challenging times we have known since the 1930s and the early 1940s. Now, historical analogies in our line of work can be fraught, but they also can be helpful. Uh, What are some of the similarities and differences between our strategic environment today and the one we faced some 90 years ago uh, that the Prime Minister might be invoking? Rory, I will start with you on that question.
1: Thanks, Catherine. I do have views on the analogy and I was actually at the launch and it was um, interesting that um, I think the PM even went beyond his prepared speech to really dwell on the 1930s analogy that he claimed was was haunting him. I don't think it's absurd to be using, uh, I guess, reference to that uh, really dark period in history. We have to be careful, obviously, because it's very easy to draw I guess simplistic parallels between certain great powers in the 1930s and certain great powers today and there's always the obvious um, argument about is China for example uh, or Russia some kind of you know, revisionist totalitarian state but looking beyond that there were several areas where this new era does actually have a parallel I think the uh, the ec- the global economic crisis that we're going through, and its impact on uh, public confidence in governments and institutions, the great weakening of the rules-based international system. Uh, the United Nations has not gone the way of the League of Nations, but there's obviously a question mark in many uh, national capitals over the effectiveness of US- UN institutions. The, um, the question of, uh, I guess, revisionism and military modernization in countries like china and indeed the the repression internally of course all these things are going to focus minds with, with reference to the 1930s but there are also some differences that i think are worth Highlighting and, and and one of those is the the very fact that we're talking about this. The very fact that a lot of governments, including in middle power democracies like Australia, are seeing the um, the storm clouds and are probably doing more. I would say to uh, to harden their nations, prepare their systems, perhaps prepare their populations. That's a question mark uh, to deter uh, and prevent crises. Uh, that's actually. A hopeful sign. Um, and of course, uh, at, at this stage, uh, we're not, you know, we're not in 1939 or even 1938. Last thing I'd note though is that we have this overlay of the pandemic, which they didn't have in the thirties. The Spanish flu had the courtesy to arrive a, a decade or so prior to that. Um, so in some ways, it's a, an even more complex and confronting strategic environment today.
4: Brendan, can I bring you in there? So the documents also talk about the way in which uh, a refresh was needed because the strategic environment that Australia faces has deteriorated more rapidly than was expected in the 2016 defence white paper, the last major defence statement by government. What did the white paper of 2016 get wrong or in what ways have circumstances outstripped the assumptions baked into that document?
0: So I don't, think it's useful to say that a white paper got it wrong uh, because white papers always, or updates always, speak to the moment. The, they're a judgment about the world as it seems to be at the moment in which it's written. But I think that the 2016 white paper really put a lot of faith in the rules-based order. And uh, if you look at it in as a strategy, what it was saying is that Australia has benefited immensely from the way the world works, the American model of globalisation, which is the way I prefer to talk about it. And it's in our interest to preserve that world as long as possible. And we do that by supporting and upholding what we we call the rules-based order. I think picking up on Rory's points, we are in a period of order transition and there are many reasons for that. There are some resemblances to the 1930s, but every period is different and has its own unique features and problems. But we are in a period of strategic transition in the way the world works. And in a sense, a rules-based order is something that is, um, as we've known it, is, is disappearing. And so I think what this White Paper is trying to do is say, well, if we can't rely On the world to operate in ways that we've been comfortable with to the extent that we have in the past, then what do we need to do differently? And I think that because our risk, our risk in the world is going up, and therefore how do we understand and manage that risk? And that's what this white paper is all about.
4: Before we move on to the substance of the documents, I'd be interested in the views of any of you about why governments put out documents like the update or like white papers? What? Who is the audience? What work are they doing? Is it, is it a political document? Is it messaging to domestic audiences? Is it telling a story perhaps to potential adversaries or our friends and partners in the region?
2: I, I'd like to think it's all of the above. I particularly like to think that uh, but now... At the moment with the attention on a national mission that is COVID, that, uh, that the government would use this as an opportunity to start engaging with the Australian community on the strategic challenges we face in the future. Uh, I think that the Australian community has been excluded for a lot of, from a lot of these conversations. And in a way, the national security community has been talking to itself. And so it would be good that this update provides the opportunity to start engaging now on the next national mission, which is actually securing the nation and securing the region, and uh, and that this is the catalyst for that. So I would like to think that um, that this is an opportunity to start engaging with the Australian community on those broader strategic challenges that we face. The Australian community is up to it and they're up for it. Never has there been a time uh, where so many Australians are talking about uh, supply chains, about sovereign capability, about politi- um, foreign interference about uh, about fuel security about food security. Uh never has there been a time. I mean I was recently at the coast uh in the supermarket and uh standing there choosing my tomatoes and there was this man talking to another woman and he was going on chapter and verse about supply chains and how he'd done all the research on uh the companies that own various supply chains and who he was going to be buying from and who he wasn't going to be buying from, and that was over sort of the fruit and fruit section. So these are the conversations that Australians are having now. As I said they are up to it and they are up for it and so I had hope that this update would provide the opportunity to start to, to start trusting the Australian people, to start introducing them into the conversation and sharing the journey because they need to be on the journey. I think that's a fantastic
4: point and I might stay with you, Gay, as we transition into talking about some of the themes in the documents. So there are three broad themes that the document's scaffolded around, the notion that defence needs to shape our environment, deter actions against Australia's interests, and then respond with military force when and if required. On that shaping piece, obviously, things like military to military diplomacy are important, and the document cites a number of ways in which Australia is stepping that up, including a recent um, comprehensive strategic partnership with India. But Defence in the military is only one tool in a panoply of potential tools of national power. How are you seeing Australia's approach to diplomacy and, frankly, other aspects of policy either dovetailing or supporting these announcements? Or, or how do they perhaps need to change to get on board with the messages in here?
2: This update focuses a lot on the technology around addressing disinformation and, uh, and the cyber warfare issue. But... Countering disinformation and information campaigns are as much, if not more, a human endeavour as a technical endeavour. So... I think what we need to be doing in, uh, in the future, in addition to the outlet, what's outlined in this update, is to focus a lot more on public diplomacy. That capability has been denuded in Australia. It's been denuded since the uh, mid-1990s. Then we had um, a very strong and powerful Radio Australia and the government, um, in its wisdom, decided to stop funding the Cox Peninsula site that was beaming out to the region. This was at a time when anti-Asian sentiment generated from pulling. Cancer was at its height, and here we are getting rid of a major information tool. Uh, At the same time, there was the launch, there was the on-off start of Australia television. It sort of stumbled along. Funding for it was, again, denuded. And uh, and in the end, it just became meaningless at a time when the region, uh, cable television in the region was exploding. So we had two very important tools that we basically... Uh, denuded or got rid of in the mid-1990s. Also, we got rid of our public diplomats. Uh, we had a very strong capability both overseas and here in Australia in terms of public diplomacy. Again, that was completely denuded. So I, I think that in the future, yes, we need to be focusing on the technology, but we also need to be focusing on the human elements, the human endeavours to address the disinformation and to engage in uh, information warfare. And that means we need to invest in our public diplomacy capability. Brendan,
4: if I can bring you in here following up from Gay's point there, I have noticed some criticism or constructive critique of these documents saying that, well, look, defence tends to focus on the big exquisite platforms, the force structure element of these documents are kind of carrying on business as usual. We've got some uh, non-big thing investments in here, but a lot of it is kind of platform centric, big big defence material fascination as it ever was. Do you think that's a, a fair criticism or are there other elements of these documents which perhaps expand out uh, the, the thinking to more of that human factor or more um, systems-wide investment in a technology ecosystem, for instance?
0: So there are big platforms, but the thing that's changed over the last 30 years is what's in the platforms. So they're more connected I mean, if you go on a a ship, an air warfare destroyer, it looks like a computer wrapped in steel. So I think that that's underestimated. That's not as visible as perhaps people sort of think. And the other thing is that increasingly the ADF and Defence more broadly is a networked organisation that is increasingly integrated and most of the new capabilities that are coming on stream have the capacity to link with one another to create an effect which is bigger than the some of the parts. I think the issue is whether there's enough. Uh, we're, we're banking a lot on technology and we're banking a lot on the ability to create big effects with a relatively small but high-tech force. But I think there's an even deeper issue which this white paper, in a sense, doesn't explore as deeply as it might, though it's implied... But if the world is changing as much as we say it is and if events are moving faster and faster and if we can't rely on the old thinking about warning time being 10 years and the white paper talks about that, then your overriding strategic measure of defence performance is going to be its capacity to adapt quickly. Mm -hmm. And the issue then for large programs and big capabilities is do they have that inherent adaptive capacity uh, and can defence gear up and change quickly if the world throws a surprise. So I think that that's probably the biggest issue that's facing us. And in the paper, I think there's a, a deep not contradiction, but a deep fissure between the level of capability aspiration embodied in the technology and the stability that that brings in terms of long-term planning uh, and a forward budget and so on, and the fact that the world is moving very fast and in unpredictable directions and challenging us in ways that we haven't been challenged for a long time, if ever. The paper talks about grey zone as a vehicle to understand that, but whether that's sufficient conceptual framework for thinking about that, I think is um, something that we need to do some more thinking about.
4: I think that's an interesting point around adaptability, because there's questions over whether you can adapt the force in being, but also how one might adapt, say, a domestic industries and repurpose them into the defence mission in the event of a contingency or crisis
0: well this is an enormous management national challenge we 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 are a small force the defence system as a whole if you include industry makes it much bigger but then there's a question of how do you get that system to both operate in an agile way and focus uh, on what needs to be done and then i think there's a still implicit in the papers a big debate on what actually needs to be done <laughs> There's some some big choices. can
4: can bring the other panellists in here because I think, I mean, there is the notion of a sovereign capability discussed in the paper. This is almost a perennial fixation in Canberra from time to time. We talk about the need to have sovereign capabilities, to have um, fuel supplies in Australia. Does the document go far enough in translating aspiration for those uh, things into actually a concrete policy plan to get there?
1: it's an imp- it's a significant improvement on the, on the past few documents i, I mean th- there's no right answer to how much is enough but um i mean i i recognize a number of themes such as the uh certainly uh you know stocks of munitions stocks of fuel uh redundancy of multiple bases and so forth so many of those elements that you need to actually have a i guess a genuine defense policy or genuine defence posture were, um, I guess, talked about in perhaps more aspirational terms in, in in previous white papers. There's a firmer commitment to some of those now. There's also, as Brendan said, the beginning of that national conversation about, um, I guess, some kind of, of greater sovereignty in industry and in supply chains. But also, uh, there's no, we should be under no illusions that this is a, an independent, a fully independent Australia, um, defence strategy. Uh, there's still also that continued great reliance on the United States and on a whole range of, of partners in the region. So it's, you know, I think
0: as Gay said, it's the start of a journey. Australian strategic policy for decades, decade upon decade, has always been built on the assumption That Australia is a trading nation that depends on the world. And we trade what people call sovereignty for benefits in the form of trade and security. You know, there's a lot of loose talk about sovereignty, but I think people need to think about what it really means uh, and how you might want to talk about it. Because, you know, our problem is not the ability to defend ourselves or put up a, a hard border. Our challenge is how do we engage in the world in a way that strengthens our security? You know, and, and so to me, that the challenge of industry policy and supply chains is really complex for that reason. There's no simple, easy answers or algorithm that gives you the, the right
3: answer. So that's where we're going to take a quick break. But we will be back in just a minute with more from Rory Medcalf, Gabe Brotman, and Brendan Sargent here on the National Security Podcast.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, if. if Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
4: I want to pick on a few threads here. Uh, this point about bringing the Australian people on a journey uh, and also around you know the, the question about what values and interests we are defending as a nation. I thought it was interesting. So this update came about a week after the Lowy Institute's most recent uh, poll of Australian public opinion on foreign affairs. And one of the questions asked in that poll was, uh, what's more important, policies which have an economic benefit or policies which defend our values. And interestingly, the majority, about 60% of Australians surveyed, said values. So in releasing this policy, the, the Prime Minister was very clear in saying that it's all about values. Uh, and he said that Australia is you know, one of the world's oldest liberal democracies and that's one of the main hinges on which our defence policy rests. Okay, if I can bring you back in... The PM seemed very confident about what those values were. He didn't list what they are, but he kind of said, we we, we all know what they are, we're all on board and we all want to defend them. What are the values that underpin this document and how do we know as a government and as kind of elite sitting in Canberra writing policy like this that we've got it right and that we're giving it space to evolve through time?
2: Well, he, he sort of touched on it very lightly in the fact that, uh, he mentioned sort of a nation of self-respect, freedom to be who we are, whatever that means, else but freedom to be ourselves, freedom to be independent, our free thinking. But, I've looked at this document in terms of the package of what the foreign minister, her speech um, here at National Security College, uh, and also, of course, the Minister for Defence's speech as well as hers, and that there is that theme very much of the values coming through in terms of rule-based order, in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of um, freedom of passage, in terms of respect for sovereignty, human rights, transparency, gender equality. Those themes are very much there. But the government again, it needs to be having this conversation with the Australian people. It needs to be clearly articulating to them what those values are, rather than sort of illusions that are that, that were in the prime minister's speech, uh, and uh, having the conversation with the uh, first up, articulating what those values are, and then talking about them ad nauseum. And they need to frame it, and it gets back to the point I made before in terms of this national mission. Everyone's got on board in terms of the national mission on COVID. Everyone is clear about what we're trying to achieve here. In terms of national security, we now need to be ha- defining what our national mission is, not just in terms of these values. Uh, they need to be at the core of our national mission, but we need to be defining what our national mission is and then getting out there and communicating it openly and often with the Australian people in every speech, in every engagement, be it about national security, be it about... Um, Uh, fuel security be about uh, food security we need to be having that we need to be coming back to those that that national mission we have to be coming back to those values in every conversation with the Australian people so they are very clear obviously Lowy has found they are again up for the conversation they are ready and engaged on this. Um, they yeah, they want to know about what our values are. They they, they do define that as being a, a very important element of who, um, what our national sh- security should be all about, what our actions should be all about. And so uh, let's continue that conversation.
1: There is actually a resource that probably isn't used enough in this. I mean, the, the government did actually make, uh, this is three years ago now, but made a, uh, I think, a very inclusive and enduring statement about Australia's national values in the foreign policy white paper in in late 2017 mm. and made a reasonable effort to connect uh, liberal democratic values, including mutual respect, equality, multiculturalism, mm. Mm. to uh, rule of law, to Australia's stance in the world. Uh, now, these things are never perfect and this was written, I guess, by officials for uh, an elite audience, uh, but uh, much more so than some of the previous foreign policy white papers and so on. I've seen there's a statement there that I think the government could translate into plain English uh, for wider consumption. Uh, The Mm. big question, I guess, is how to make that about more than politics.
4: Taking us back to some of the the hard-edged policy in the document, we spoke about the shape, deter, respond theming. On deter, uh, what I found quite interesting was the renewed emphasis on that element of the, of the ADF's role. And we're speaking about the way in which Australia has to do a lot with little just before. Well, the document explicitly says and acknowledges Australia is a relatively small country with a, quote, limited resource base, but we can hold major powers at risk, uh, not just in terms of their forces, but also their infrastructure. Is this a new era of kind of the return to high-end deterrence, uh, as I've seen uh, a couple of people phrase it?
0: Look, I, I thought it was very interesting, actually. I thought that was the most interesting part of the paper and the thing that jumped out at me. Um, so deterrence has always been part of Australian defence policy, but we haven't talked about it in probably about 20 years. The, the, the really big deterrence capability we had was the F-111s, so we really haven't had a, a replacement to that. Um, There are capabilities in the ADF set, such as uh, submarines, and to some extent the uh, Joint Strike Fighter. So to me, the deterrence element was significant. It was a statement about our willingness to push back against intrusions into what we would consider our strategic space or our area of interest, To me, the most interesting thing about deterrence is that it's not you deterring, it's you in a relationship with someone else. Uh, And deterrence is how you manage that relationship. So I think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done about how we want to think about deterrence, who we're deterring and what its function in the policy mix actually is. So I think it's the beginning of um, quite a big conversation that's going to take place over the next couple of years.
4: The capability kind of investments to back up that deterrence mission are are pretty broad in the the documents. It talks about attack class submarines, advanced long-range strike weapons, remotely piloted combat aircraft, offensive cyber. Is this, you know, when we talk about big investments like this with an explicit deterrence focus... We always run into perhaps concerns about arms race dynamics or security dilemmas, uh, things that we investments we think will make us safer, raise the threat perceptions of the um, major powers that, in the words of the document, uh, Australia might be seeking to deter. Do you think that uh, the documents are grappling with those arms race dynamics, and how can we make sure that these investments, you know, give security di- uh, dividends for Australia, and don't result in a security, a classic security dilemma, where we end up less safe in the region.
1: I think there's been there has been some pretty um, simple commentary in the last week or two that says, well, you know, if this upsets our friends in Southeast Asia, then it's counterproductive and self-defeating and so forth. And yet we've had very open statements from a government like Indonesia saying we welcome Australia having the, the ability to not only to protect itself more effectively, but to be a more credible security partner. So, um, frankly, I'm not, you know, I, I, I think it's pretty absurd to say that Australia's on some kind of security dilemma driving path at the moment. The, um, again, unstated explicitly in the paper, but the fact is that the major power that Australia has in its mind when it's thinking about these capabilities is China. And, uh, everything that Australia or, or other countries in the region have done in the past 10 to 15 years to actually restrain their own military modernization has not had the slightest effect, uh-huh. as I can see it, on restraining China's. So, uh, you know, at this stage, I'm not concerned about that dynamic.
0: Yeah, look, I, I agree. I think that the, The question is how do we relate to the region and how do we participate with the region in building a common security culture and, you know, for very traditional Australian policy goals of strategic stability. So I think that um, there's actually a lot of continuity in this paper and I don't think that the work on deterrence or even the capability set is all that different from the mainstream of Australian policy for a very long time. What we're now seeing is a, a, I suppose, a more challenging security environment. It's got sharper edges. China has demonstrated a willingness to exercise coercion, and it would be foolish not to respond to that. Uh, And Australia among most of the regional countries close to us has the capacity to do that. So you could argue that in establishing this defence update and signaling that we're prepared to build and use the capabilities if necessary, uh, we're exercising um, appropriate strategic leadership in our region.
2: It's timely in the fact that it is responding to the, the current strategic environment. We haven't really had much around that in recent years in terms of getting a sense from what the government is doing. There's been individual actions, say the, the response to the, or the call out, um, for the review of the pandemic, uh, and engaging with the international community on that, uh, in terms of the work that we're doing, uh, with integrating and engaging with Indonesia, Japan, India particularly, there's been all these individual actions, these separate actions, these disparate actions in many ways. I mean, there's, in the national security community, they're, already, they're all very clear on what they're trying to achieve. But for the Australian people... This actually provides a timely update and response to what's actually happening and encapsulates a range of issues. It encapsulates our values. Um, I'd like it to encapsulate a national mission, but it encapsulates our values and our response to what's actually happening. And I I, I think the Australian people are actually looking for that at the moment. As I said, they're very engaged on this issue and and the fact that there's been all these individual actions I think has been terrific, but this actually embodies is an umbrella in terms of our response, and it clearly articulates where we want to go.
1: These documents are written in in language that um, you know, to the average uh, intelligent lay reader, could mm. be a little bit clearer. There are all sorts of terms there. I might tired of language about malicious actors, for example. I always visualise some sort of 1930s Hollywood star or something. But but <laughs> so these, these these documents could be blunter in some ways in using words like war or, you know, national hardship or national suffering. But you can read between the lines pretty clearly. Um, and in fact, when you read between the lines of this document and the white papers over the last 20 years, there is a really interesting journey, again, towards acknowledging that there are going to be circumstances in the future where Australia is going to have to inflict or endure harm. Um, and I think that's actually refreshingly honest and I think a little bit more of that. Yes, It's going to be important because it, nor does this say everything's going to be fine, trust us. It's actually reasonably fluent about, about the landscape of risk.
4: One of those kind of buzzwords that gets thrown around a lot and is in the document is this notion of grey zone activities. For the average intelligent layperson or indeed for international listeners not familiar so much with Australia's strategic circumstances, when we're talking about grey zone activities adverse to Australia's interests – uh, and the docu- uh, the documents say we do face many what are we what are we thinking about what kind of activities are we talking
2: about?
0: So gray zone I mean I, I personally don't like the term I, I think that um, states are competitive um, or adversarial and that they'll deploy a whole range of instruments of national power to seek advantage in the international system and that they'll do that. In ways that advance her interests without necessarily provoking a, a full-scale conflict, so grey zone activities are, for example, the Chinese island building in the South China Sea, uh, or Chinese intimidation of fishing fleets in Philippines, and and so the question that that puts into the minds of people who might be affected by it is it worth escalating or not? So grey zone advances political and strategic interests uh, in ways that make it difficult for competitors to, to respond. And I think that it, it's a real challenge, but my way of thinking about it is that you have a spectrum of policy instruments, you have spectrum of capacity to escalate or de-escalate, you're in fundamentally a political struggle uh, deploying a range of policy instruments uh, across full spectrum of potential activity and that you need to manage and think about it at that level and the really critical task is how do you manage and control escalation without losing. Um, your own strategic position.
1: What do you think go, what's your what's your um preferred grey zone activity?
2: Uh, disinformation campaigns, well most recently, uh, the disinformation campaigns on uh, Covid and um, where it came from and uh, what are the symptoms and how you whether there's a treatment or not. Also, uh, where investment becomes entrapment, and there's many instances of that, um, in, in Sri Lanka and elsewhere. And also political interference, of course, which has been the hot issue of recent years. That's actually claimed some political scalps. Uh, that is also an area of grey zone.
1: And on the economics of it too. I mean, the 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 use, you know, the economic coercion we've seen against Australia recently, uh, but also that, um, well, literally that grey area where uh, there may well be uh, investments that take place with partly commercial motives, but depending on how they're uh, monitored, handled, misused, they can also be a kind of a a way in for some kind of, I guess, pre-positioning for future influence or even sabotage. And what's fascinating, again, reading a lot of the 1930s history lately, as I've been inspired to do is how many of the, in different language, how many of these elements were factors of international competition in the 1930s and how long it took some countries to recognise what was going on.
0: So I think that the challenge of grey zone is whether our policy community and the way we make decisions in government and the way we think about policy is actually sufficiently integrated. And and whose job is it, Brendan? That's And Where to, this to may or may not be a defence As comprehensively as you might need to. So we, we have a policy culture that says defence, foreign affairs, home affairs, economic policy, they're all managed as separate domains, but that's not the way the world works.
4: No. What would good look like then, if I can challenge you on that? So some suggestions in Canberra that we need a broader national security um, committee or architecture that sits above that. Others say pm c our Prime Minister's Cabinet uh, Department should take more of a role. This is a do whole we, new podcast. Do we need new <laughs> b- bureaucratic
2: structures? Well, national Security we, Advisor.
0: Look, well, we've had all those things and we have the National Security Committee of Cabinet. So there are integrating processes within the bureaucracy. I actually think it's a mindset. So this is a defence policy paper. I mean, the real issue is if we're doing this on defence policy, how do we link it with what foreign policy does? You know, what's the, the story that integrates? And I think that our policy and administrative mindsets actually inhibit our capacity to make those cross-domain links and to frame responses in that way. And and so I, I think it's a, it's a mindset thing. Structure will help but it won't change things. Um, Structure can reinforce, but you actually have to think differently about how you operate in the world.
4: If I can bring us back now to wrap this up as much as we can, to some of the responses that we've seen to the strategy. So I thought that the response from uh, the Chinese government was actually quite muted, quite low key. And we've also seen responses from some of our allies and partners in the region. Rory, you mentioned just before that Indonesia, for instance, has been quietly supportive of this policy reset. How are we seeing in in your minds, these documents and policy reset being received?
1: Well, I just continue that Quick tour of the region, you know. I think the only country, perhaps apart from North Korea, that is likely to feel uncomfortable in the region looking at this document is is going to be China. And it was kind of amusing to see the official one. I think the official Chinese statement, sort of warning against arms racing, and it was a number of newspapers ran that statement along with photographs from the um, the great military parade in Beijing a year or two ago. Like I think the the non ally partners that Australia is cultivating in the region. In you know, countries like India, for example, this 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 got extraordinarily positive press in India last week. Um, and I think this has it's the final, I guess, nail in the coffin of the myth in India that Australia is some kind of swing state between mm. China and America. So that's mm. actually good for Australia's interests. Look, so I think it's a broadly positive story. How the alliance reads it, uh, I don't know exactly, but I would say that, again, this is – yes, this is this is partly about continuing the self-reliance journey, but it's in no way a uh, a statement that we've given up on the alliance, and the Americans will read it that way, I think.
0: I think the alliance element is actually an interesting theme that runs through the paper. So we're heavily dependent on the U.S., for much of our capability, and that interdependence is increasing. But what we've also said is that um, we will focus on the region, which doesn't exclude discretionary activity elsewhere, but we will focus on the region. And I think in alliance policy terms, what it's starting to say is if we make our contribution here, then that's actually a significant and strategic contribution to the alliance rather than a contribution through participation in coalitions uh, in other parts of the world, which are not necessarily directly relevant to Australia's security interests. So it's a big marker of change, just as our strategic environment is changing and policy is responding to that, we're starting to see what I would regard as the beginning of a reset of some of our really important relationships. And much of that arc is the core of the Indo-Pacific anyway.
1: So in a sense, by Australia having that sharper regional focus, it's precisely where we're going to be of greatest benefit to the alliance anyway.
4: so to end off, then, what I think is interesting is to think about where next. So we've got a policy reset. We've got the the architecture, the direction. Where do we go to next? I'm going to do something terrible and put words in each of your mouths as to what I've heard, and then ask to be corrected. So from Gay, I think the most important thing, or one of the really interesting things that you've put out, is the idea that we need to have a national conversation about this. We use the goodwill generated by COVID and. The sense that people care more about and understand our international environment more, to have a national conversation about defence and security and the values that underpin that. From Brendan, I've heard a lot of things, one of which is that we need to think about the the policy culture, the policy mindset, and perhaps maybe think about the way in which we have structures that enable us to put our elements of national power in a way that um, has some sense of coherence across them. Rory, I'm struggling to put words in your mouth, um, so you can tell me um, what you think in terms of next steps. Where, where to from from here?
1: Well, I mean, I do see. I guess I have a slightly vested interest in seeing this as that as more continuity with the 2016 white paper than sort of radical change. I think the the real challenge will be uh, to to. Really live up to the commitments in this document over the next ten years, because it's going to be a very tough economic environment. You know, there are likely to be occasional changes of government in that in that time, and uh, there will be more strategic shocks uh, and economic shocks and other shocks that will hit us over those ten years. So it's really about um, maintaining that path from here, and perhaps uh, being willing at later stages to do some slightly more adventurous things with with, with force structure. I think as as Brendan it's foreshadowed.
0: But look, I think in the paper, there is a statement that Australia will need to exercise leadership in the region in the future, strategically and operationally. It doesn't quite say that, but that's the implication. So my view is we're going to be busier. We're going to have to be more active. We're going to have to integrate our policy cultures. And we need to, you know, sort of think more in terms of statecraft and diplomatic Public diplomacy, defence statecraft, than we have had to in recent years. Big change. I like
1: the fact that it actually includes the term defence diplomacy, which I understand was banned once upon a time. <laughs>
4: Look, I think that's all we've got time for. That's been a fantastic and quick tour through the Defence Strategic Update and Force Structure Review. Thank you all so much for your time and very frank assessments, Gay, Brendan, and Rory. And we look forward to having you join us next time on the National Security Podcast.
3: And a big thanks to Gay, Brendan and Rory for joining us on today's episode of the National Security Podcast. And thank you as well to Catherine for her deft hosting of a complex discussion. And it's a discussion that you can join yourself. You can tell us what you think of today's discussion, what you think of the strategic update and full structure plan. Or you can even send us some suggestions of issues that we can discuss in future episodes. You can do that by hitting us up on Twitter using Apps Policy Forum or you can speak to me directly at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or you can just drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. As always, please hit that subscribe button. And if you've got the time, we'd love for you to drop us a review and even maybe a five-star rating on whatever platform you pod with. And we'll be back soon with the next episode of the National Security Podcast.